right. We rolling? Yeah, we're, let's, we're ready. Okay. Uh, welcome to the Godzilla vs. Biolanti panel. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess we'll uh, introduce ourselves briefly. We have a lot to go through, so let's, uh, we'll, we'll try and get through this as uh, painlessly as possible. Um, for those who don't know, I am Kyle Bird. I am one half of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I'm John LeMay. I'm the Lost Films guy. And while I have the mic, I just want to say congrats on that Biolante dress. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Kevin Dierendorf, I run a blog called Maser Patrol and wrote a book called Kaiju for Hipsters. I am Matt Parmley. I am the other half of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. It's like a sandwich here. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm assuming everyone in this room has seen this film probably many times. Um, so we're not going to bore you so much with uh, the details of the plot or anything like that. We're more going to run you through um, how the movie was made, how it came to be, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, we're going to go back to 1984 with the release of Return of Godzilla. And Bialante was released in 89. So why did it take so long for them to make another Godzilla film? Um, and that's kind of a complicated question to answer, but um, Return of Godzilla, or Godzilla 84, um, it was successful enough to make Toho want to do a sequel, but it wasn't quite what they were hoping to make, especially since it had such a huge production budget, um, and uh, a sequel was announced in 85. Um, they weren't really in a rush, like I said, but then in 86, King Kong Lives comes along and does miserably in Japan. And uh, Tomoyuki, Tomoyuki Tanaka at Toho got cold feet over this. Um, and, uh, you know, another Godzilla was, you know, pushed to the bottom of the list of priorities. Um, he did regain a little bit more confidence when Little Shop of Horrors did well later that year. Um, which allegedly similarities between Biolanti and Audrey 2 are coincidental. I am inclined to believe him, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about why. So, um, not quite knowing where to go creatively, how can we punch up the franchise, get people interested again. Um, Toho did something kind of strange, and they held a writing contest for people to submit their own story ideas and treatments. Um, and they would pick the best one, and that would be the next Godzilla film. Um, one of the judges, actually, a little piece of trivia, one of the judges on the um, committee for the finalists was Osamu Tezuka, who uh, is known as the grandfather of manga and anime. Um, well, they, but the, Now, the story they ended up getting out of this contest was written by a dentist named Shinichiro Kobayashi, um, and uh, their second choice was an American named James Bannon who submitted a story about Godzilla facing off against a giant supercomputer uh, in the future. Um, and Toho liked his idea so much that uh, they reworked it into the movie Gunhead, also released in 1989. Um, the less said about that film, the better. So I am going to <laughs> defer to Kevin to tell us a little bit more about Kobayashi. Oh, man, I was told this was a gunhead panel. I'm disappointed. 
so yeah, uh, Shinichiro Kobayashi has a very interesting life story because actually he, uh, back when he was in high school, he submitted several scripts and story concepts to Tsuburaya Productions, and some of these stories got made as episodes of uh, Return of Ultraman and, and um, uh, Mirror Man. And uh, here's one that's basically the, the prototype for uh, Godzilla vs. Biollante. It's uh, episode 34 of Return of Ultraman, uh, and this features a monster called Leogon. And the, the plot of this episode is basically a mad scientist who is creating a hybrid of plant and animal life. Uh, it escapes from the laboratory, it sort of runs amok, and Ultraman fights it in a lake. And even looking at this design, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of, huh, well, that's, that's interesting that this guy also wrote Godzilla vs. Biollante. What's more interesting is he didn't continue to be a screenwriter. He went to dental college and then spent 18 years as a dentist and then uh, went back to, uh, to su submit this draft. Uh, he didn't really write anything in between. Uh, so this is like an entire lifetime later that he's like, okay, well, I'll submit another story that's basically the same thing. Uh, after that, his career sort of drops off. He, he does consulting on Godzilla versus Space Godzilla and Godzilla 2000. I don't know what the consulting was. If I had to guess based on these three movies, it probably has some dubious science to do with cells. But... Uh, yeah, then he went back to being a, a dentist, and he teaches at a dental college to this day. Uh, yeah, so talking about his, um, his drafts, uh, we're going to defer to John um, to tell us about the different screenplays that it went through. Yeah, so Kobayashi went through about three screenplay drafts, and the basis of his idea was he said he looked at his young daughter and just imagined, what if something happened to her? And so that's where his idea came from about a scientist whose daughter has died and he prolongs her life through genetic experimentation with plants. Um, so I think most, most fans know about the aborted first draft, which um, is interesting because number one, it didn't have Mickey Sagusa in it. She hadn't been invented yet. Um, there was kind of a precursor to that in that the main character, whose name is Sayaka, she, she develops kind of a psychic link with, with the plant Biollante. So there is the element of a psychic girl there. Um, the really interesting thing about this first draft is it had another monster in it. It was a fish-rat hybrid named Deutalios, which I think had a really interesting design. I wish somebody would make like a figurine out of it or something. Um, I mean, it's fundamentally similar uh, to the finished film. There, are, There is like a Middle Eastern uh, Republic that is financing the doctor and all that. Um, Biollante's design is very different. It, it's more like the first form that we see in the film. It never metamorphosizes into the big reptilian menace that we see in the final film. So that's a big uh, departure. So Tomoyuki Tanaka uh, basically liked it, but for some reason he didn't want the other monster in there. I don't know if it's because he didn't like Dutalios or he didn't want to build another monster suit, but I, he basically asked for Dutalios to be cut. That was the first thing he asked for in the second draft. He said it needed more conflict. Um, something else that was interesting about the first draft of Biollante is Biollante is not created with Godzilla cells. It's just literally a combination of human and plant cells. So you've got to ask yourself, why did it grow big? I guess that's just Ultraman logic, but if you combine genes, it gets big. Um, so that was Tomiyuki Tanaka's suggestion, was well, why, does, how, why not make it where the cells 
our Godzilla cells and then the plant and then the daughter. And so that's where that came from. Um, so most people don't know about uh, Kobayashi's second draft. It was kind of far out. And that the, the Middle Eastern Republic in this draft, um, the reason they want the Godzilla cells is they think that Godzilla is the reincarnation of an Egyptian crocodile god named Sobek. And they think that if they can get these cells, they can, they can resurrect Sobek and control the world. So that's, that's why this Middle Eastern Republic is interested in this in the second draft, which is kind of interesting. Um, that it had a precursor to the Super X2, only it was called the Zeus, which meant Zooming Electron Universal Shooter. Um, it wasn't able to fly, it had to be flown into the battlefield, and then it would be dropped on the ground, and it was able to like reflect Godzilla's ray, so that's where that came from. Uh, Mickey Sagusa is in this draft, um, but she doesn't have a psychic link with Godzilla. Uh, she only has it with Biollante. And so technically, I w well, I always thought Kazuki Omori created Mickey, but um, according to the, the book Godzilla vs. Biollante Perfection, uh, Kobayashi actually created her before Kazuki Omori ever actually came on to the project. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, in this draft, Dr. Shiragami, he's a lot like, to me, Dr. Mifune from Terra of Mechagodzilla. He's a little bit crazier. There's this Terra of Mechagodzilla-type flashback to where Erika dies. Um, and in this draft, also something interesting is uh, between Biollante and Godzilla is Godzilla's ray actually makes Biollante stronger every time he fires it at her. Um, so then, let's see, Kobayashi did a third draft, which got lost, so we don't know what's in it, but all we know is Tomiyuki Tanaka didn't like it. Uh, Tanaka's comment was, it gets worse every time he changes it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why at that point it was handed over to Kazuki Omori. And Omori's first draft is really interesting because Omori made it to where Miki Sagusa is Dr. Shiragami's secret daughter and also Erika's sister. So that's Mickey's secret origin was uh, she was kind of like Dr. Shiragami's genetic experiment and he manipulated her genes to make her psychic. And it's basically, it's not something you know first thing in the story as the story develops. There's little hints that Mickey might be his daughter and then it's a surprise reveal later on. Um, this version is a lot like Mothra versus Godzilla and that uh, people are asking Biollante for help because Godzilla is destroying Japan, or, or specifically Dr. Shiragami pleads with, with his daughter within Biollante, you know, will, will you help us drive away Godzilla? And Biollante says no. And what changes Biollante slash Erica's mind is when she realizes that Miki Sagusa is actually her sister the whole time, and then that for some reason softens Erica's heart, and then she uses Biollante to fight Godzilla. So. That was, so that was Mickey's origin, was actually his Erica's sister. Um, and let's see, Biollante doesn't just stay in, in, Lake B in Lake Ashino in this version, she's actually in Lake Biwa. And Godzilla doesn't come out of Mount Mihara, he travels underground, and also like in Mothra vs. Godzilla, he bursts out of the ground, which is kind of an interesting entrance. So uh, Kobayashi did uh, write the novelization of Godzilla vs. Biollante, and it included both the Deutalios and the Zeus that uh, John had mentioned. So it sounds like that novelization is sort of a combination of different okay. screenplays. And that's, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, and so that draft, you know, was eventually discarded. Kazuki Omori dropped the idea that Mickey would be Erika's sister. She just became a special psychic girl. 
And as the drafts progress, the only other really interesting departures are um, initially Godzilla's exit from Mount Mahara was a lot more epic, and they were going to attack him with helicopters right away. And that was in the script drafts until very late in the game. Uh, another really neat thing that was in there uh, late in the game that they dropped, probably because it was too difficult to do, is there's the scene where the SS9, the agent, is trying to flee the country. And as he flees the country, he was supposed to drive his car in between Godzilla's legs as Godzilla crosses the freeway. But they probably thought that was too ambitious. And also during the Lake Ashino battle, the Super X2 was supposed to get in on that with Godzilla and Biollante. But those are the main interesting differences. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Kazuki Omori, um, it's a lot to say about him. Uh, interesting guy. Um, so he was already an established, award-winning filmmaker by the time he got onto this film, um, which would be, I believe, his 10th or 11th feature. Um, and uh, there was a lot of heat coming off of him. You know, he was seen as this really interesting um, new voice. Um, and it would be his approach to Godzilla and the franchise that would kind of lay the groundwork for um, the rest of the Heisei series, maybe even some of the Millennium series. Um, and uh, a lot of this actually came out of the fact that he really wasn't a big fan of Godzilla or kaiju movies. Um, one of the first things we all kind of look at when you know a new director is announced for a kaiju movie is, well, are they real fans? And um, I think Omori, especially with this movie, kind of proves you don't really need to, to be to make a good entry. Um, you know, he, he watched Godzilla movies as a kid, Ultraman shows, um, but once he got into junior high and um, uh, high school, he really kind of saw it as like a, this guilty pleasure thing that he liked as a kid. Even then, he was more interested in movies like The Mysterians and Atragon and Gorath. Um, and I have some quotes that uh, are pretty interesting, if not harsh. Um, for example, um, uh, in an interview that was published in Markelite magazine um, when Biolanti was released, he said, I used to watch old monster movies, but it turned into something akin to professional wrestling somewhere along the way, and I felt foolish for watching them. I could only watch them with interest till junior high. Um, and sure enough, that's when he started seeing a lot of um, big, big, lavish American action films. The James Bond series was his favorite. Um, and uh, he just kind of was like, well, this is where it's at. Um, and furthermore, he went on to say, children who watched shows like Ultra 7 got older and started to leave those things behind. If, uh, if one sticks to these types of things continuously, they will become an abnormal person. <laughs> My Godzilla will be a monster movie that satisfies a young boy's desires, but also one that will be bearable for an ordinary salary man who might have a wife and kids. So... Uh, again, harsh words. Um, so that begs the question, why did he um, put his name in for Godzilla? Uh, well, he felt that if Godzilla worked to come back, it should be a more serious, um, appealing to older viewers. Um, and uh, when he saw the return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1984, he felt the movie was very underwhelming, and he felt he could do a better version of a serious type of Godzilla movie. Um, so he approached Tanaka at Toho um, by expressing that he had felt that the Godzilla brand had been deteriorated. And, you know, he was like, hey, what you guys just did, I can do that better. And Godzilla being, you know, this iconic franchise with, at that point, 30-some years behind it, he really 
um, felt like it was a good step forward for his career. Um, so what did he bring in that was so special? Uh, well, his approach to the storytelling was more modern, at least by 80s standards. Um, uh, his work didn't really share Ashiro Honda's idealism and this kind of glorification of um, scientists uh, and, you know, showing that uh, this, there's this utopian version of humanity that we can all aspire to. Um, he had a much more grounded point of view where, you know, scientists are no longer these unquestionable heroes that are going to solve everything. Now they are kind of these kind of schmucks that are manipulated by corporations and governments and hired to create weapons and, and things. At, at one point in the movie, Dr. Shiragami even says, scientists are just another host of politicians. Um, and this is a major shift in, uh, in viewpoints for the, this franchise, you know, is the kind of historical themes of global brotherhood and anti-nationalism of the Showa era are replaced with um, uh, more complex relationships with feuding nations. Um, and the idea of patriotism it, it had been become a lot more acceptable in Japan um, after the 60s and, you know, into the 70s and 80s. Um, so here is where we see, you know, the self-defense force would collaborate with Toho more on the productions, um, provide them with equipment and personnel. Um, in this movie in particular, nearly every non-Japanese character is a villain, you know, with Japan more or less kind of single-handedly overcoming um, these obstacles. Uh, and I know uh, Ishiro Honda himself had kind of later in life expressed disappointment that um, the franchise kind of took that trajectory, which was sort of amended in the formation of the UN's uh, G-Force and Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Um, and of course, Amori would later um, write and direct Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Um, he would write the screenplays for Godzilla vs. Mothra and Godzilla vs. Destroya. Um, and uh, he would return to Kaiju and Tokusatsu with the 2005 uh, Caesar X film, which uh, also featured the Gotengo as well. Um, so the other big, um, I guess, debut for Godzilla in terms of behind the camera is Koichi Kawakita, special effects director. Um, and uh, to talk a little bit more about him, I will defer to Kevin. Yeah, I mean, uh, funny, uh, speaking of Sather X and speaking of people who are probably more into the Mysterians than they are into Godzilla, uh, that brings us to Koichi Kawakita. And, uh, he basically debuted with the, with the Godzilla series here. He had done special effects on, on works uh, before that, I mean, he actually did special effects in the Zone Fighter TV series, uh, and uh, he first directed on uh, Ultraman Ace in 1972. Uh, he gets sort of a bad rap nowadays for beam battles and glitter, but uh, sparks. Uh, he's he's absolutely fantastic for mechanical designs, and especially if you watch his early things, you can see, uh, you know, Gunhead gets a bad rap, but the special effects in that are, are really entertaining and uh, this is a movie by Lanty where he is firing on all cylinders where the Godzilla stuff is really well done and all of the mechanical stuff you can really see it uh, shine there uh, yeah uh, anything else to say about him? Uh, that's pretty solid as far as uh, where he was at the time um, 
And uh, I think in front of the camera, John, you have uh, some notes on the cast as well. I do. I've, I've got a few notes. I'm going to talk about them more and how they relate towards the Godzilla series and Kaiju Aiga in general instead of just their, their film roles. Um, and Matt, did you have like individual slides for them? Or? So, yeah, it's okay. kind, of, kind of a list, yeah. Okay, perfect. So we'll talk about Megumi Odaka first. You know, she's, she's the best known because her character... Mickey debuted in this film and actually was in every subsequent Hesei entry Godzilla film uh, thereafter. Um, her film debut was in Princess from the Moon in 1987. And if my memory serves me right, I think she won a Best Newcomer Award for that yeah. film at the Japanese... Okay, Kevin's say, saying <laughs> yes, so she yes. did. Um, Princess from the Moon, you know, she starred opposite... Um, what's his name, the big Japanese actor who was in that? Toshiro Mifune. Yeah, Toshiro Mifune. Oh, She's, him. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I... I did more homework for the screenplay than I did the cast, but uh, Princess from the Moon, I've actually seen it. It's a pretty good film. She plays a, a girl who's blind in that and does a very good job. Um, the lead role was uh, Kunihiko Miramura, um, who played uh, Kazuto Kirishima, and um, as far as a character goes, that character, I can tell you this, he actually started out as Erika's fiance in the early drafts, and as he evolved, he became... Um, just his own separate character. Um, he, he had a pretty steady line of work, but there's really nothing genre-related, except for he played Ayana's father in Gamera 3, which I thought was interesting. Um, then as for Yoshiko Tanaka, she was 33 when she appeared in the film, and she also appears in Godzilla vs. Mothra in 1992. And Kevin, do you remember what character she plays in that? She's not reprising the same character, I don't think. I think she's just playing a different character. No, but she is in it. Yeah. Yeah, and she was also in the, the 1989 film Black Rain as well. Um, I would like to talk a bit about uh, Masanobu Takashima, who played General Kur Kurioki. Um, he was 23 at the time he played the role, but what's significant about him is he was the son of uh, Tadoro Takashima from King Kong vs. Godzilla and Son of Godzilla, and he was also the younger brother of uh, Masahiro Takashima. And Masahiro Takashima was... Let's see, he was in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 1993 as Aoki. He was in Yamato Takuro. And what's funny is in Godzilla vs. Destroya, they bring back the character of General Kuroki commanding the Super X3, but it's not Masanobu Takashima who plays him from Biollante. It's his brother, Masahiro, who plays him. And I guess they figured they both look so much alike that no one would notice. <laughs> and the other funny thing about Masahiro Takashima is he was... Also in a big Toho special effects movie that same year, he was in Gunhead. And they do look very much alike. I actually thought they were twins, but that's not the case. Um, now, as for... Let's see, I'm looking for my notes on Dr. Shiragami. That was Koji Takahashi, who had been uh, acting since the 1960s and was in his uh, 50s when he played the part. But something I think is interesting is that Kazuki Omori uh, wanted... Um, Akihiko Harata to play Dr. Shiragami, and he had already been dead since 1984, so I'm, I'm confused why he wanted that, but I do have this quote, and basically Omori told Brett Homnick that, begin quote, Akihiko Harata is the name of one of the famous actors, and before Biollante, we wanted to work together, but he passed away before Biollante was in the process of being made, so we weren't able to work with him. In Biollante, there's a big role that I wanted him to play, and I wanted to ask him to do that role. But because he passed away, I found someone of equal quality to play the part. 
And so basically, yeah, uh, Omori wanted that to be Akihiko Harata, and also he even at one point had Dr. Shiragami wearing an eye patch as a reference to Surizawa. But that's, a, that's all my notes on the cast. I want to talk about the score of the film for a few moments. Uh, so it was scored by Koichi Sugiyama, who's actually better known for his work on the Dragon Quest video game franchise. He's done several scores, and actually that game series is still running today. I think the last release was probably 2018. He did some work in uh, 1979's um, 009. What's that? There we go. Thank you. Um, but I have there was some interesting dynamic between he and Akira Fukube. So Toho approached Afuka Bay and said, can we use the Godzilla theme? And he said, sure, as long as it's not turned into popular music. And of course, five minutes into the film, we get the crazy electric guitar that's very 80s. And uh, that was not something that Afuka Bay was a fan of. And, said, and he actually said that um, it was, there was nothing he could do about it at that point. And his daughter, tells, he tells a story about his daughter too, that basically, hey, if... Toho's going to keep using your music anyway. Please go back to the Godzilla series and keep doing the music. Um, Sugiyama actually used European themes specifically for the uh, Republic of Seradia, and Afukabe said he found that completely ridiculous. And so he had some pretty stern criticisms of his work. I should also probably mention that Sugiyama um, has some controversy behind him. He's well known in the video game industry. In fact, somebody called him basically the, um, the god of video game scores. But he also is not a fan of um, his views on patriotism in Japan are, are pretty controversial because he denies the existence of comfort women, which the less said about that now, probably the better. But it's something that's noted because he actually took out an op-ed in the Washington Post and he talked about how Japan's getting a bad rap because of all the things that were being said about it during World War II and the, um, some of the massacres and some of the, the, the comfort women there. So there's a lot of controversy with his name, but that being said, he's very well respected amongst people that play video games. Um, the guy that composed all, all, probably 90% of the Final Fantasy scores loved his work, and he's the one who said that he was the uh, god of musical scores for video games. Um, transitioning from there, we're going to look at some of the cool stuff from special effects and deleted scenes. So we have uh, a maquette here on the left of the, of the flower. We have unused Bilanti concepts for the heads. They were actually rejected because they were found to be too humanoid. Um, and then we have another prop that is to the right. So those are, those are all pretty interesting. Uh, I don't really see humans in, those bo in that bottom picture, but here's the uh, unused uh, stop motion animation. This was rejected basically because it wouldn't fit with the live action shot. So this would have taken place during Godzilla's bi uh, battle with Rose Bilanti in the lake. And you can see that if you were to transition from the live action battle to this, it wouldn't have been intercut very well. So this shot, and if you get the uh, Blu-ray release, there's a, a ton of behind the scenes special features. But this shot is Bilanti spores coming down and the entire area around Godzilla blooms with beautiful roses. It's one of the scenes I wish they would have kept in the film. Um, we'll talk more about the Bilanti's uh, spores here in a second. Well, I, I believe that shot was also... I, I think the reason they didn't go with that was because if you look at the scale, the flowers are, like, like yeah, enormous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Godzilla looks normal, so I think they were like, this visually makes no sense, but I like it, too. It's pretty. I think it's awesome. This is the unused or part of the unused animation, so... There were actually three teams for special effects. You had um, the main unit that shot most of the, the stuff in Osaka. 
Then you had the, the subunit that did a lot of the stuff with Super X at sea with Godzilla. And then there was an entire team dedicated to the stop motion and to the animation side, which unfortunately none of that gets put into the movie. This is one of those, uh, those sequences. There were actually three suits made for the film. Um, the first one is the no good Godzilla suit. And the reason it was rejected was because uh, Satsuma couldn't move in it. That middle picture, um, he basically said that he could not lift his legs up. And ultimately that's why they rejected that particular suit. Here's another picture. It also looks a bit different from the, the suits used in the film. Uh, a couple shots. The shot on the left is actually the recreation of Tokyo from 1984. So they, they rebuilt part of the, of the city on a soundstage. The shot to the right, um, this is where they filmed Godzilla at the very beginning of the, of, the, uh, of the movie where they're kind of peeking into the volcano. They filmed him between the, uh, the crevice of the rocks. So for the scenes in uh, Mount Mahora, they, they actually brought in bulldozers. They piled up dirt as high as you could. Um, Satsuma commented that he had to wear goggles, and you can see that on the, t on the top right side. He couldn't see anything, so they put goggles on him. Now, they use them throughout the production, obviously, because of um, explosions and such, but he specifically mentions he couldn't even see through the suit without having the goggles on. Here's a water prop used. Um, kind of an unconvincing effect, in my opinion, but this is a little prop, and it's actually about two feet long to give you an idea of what you're looking at there. There were um, two animatronics made for the film, so there was about a three-quarter prop, and then for the extreme close-ups, they actually used a second one that was... That was uh, smaller, just the, the basically the chest up, and that was the one that you see for the, the extreme close-ups during battle. Here's the hanger for the Super X and a couple different props. You can see they actually have multiple uh, Super Xs that they use in the film. Um, I included this shot because I'm not sure people understand how big uh, Toho's pool was. So the, the pool was used for any sort of water scenes, and what you can't see probably 15 feet um, to the far, in this case the, the far right, is there's a matte painting behind that that would be you know, your sky, your backdrop. So this pool is absolutely huge, and I wanted to, to, to show how big the scale would be for this particular movie. On the top left, you have the wave machine, so that's how they created the wave for the ocean. And then for the shooting on site at Osaka, they actually went out, uh, took pictures of the city, and then they kind of drew in what they wanted Godzilla to do. So you're seeing kind of a rough idea of a storyboard there. So one of the things uh, mentioned in the, um, the Mark Light magazine and actually in the special features is this is the first film that, where they use 70 millimeter uh, film when they're, they're, they were filming for compositing. So what happens is when you film at that high resolution, when you switch from the live action shot at the very bottom and then you blend that in to the piece at the top, it's, it's a less noticeable gap and it looks a lot better in this film. And, and I think this particular shot in particular where the camera pans from the very bottom up to Biolanta, you can see how, can, uh, how realistic that looked on the 70 millimeter film. Here's a shot of Biolanta being operated uh, through the wires. And again, this is the Osaka set. You can see how massive the set pieces were. So when Godzilla breaks the building and it kills Gondo, um, they actually filled that three different times. And all three uh, times, actually, all, all three uh, shots were actually combined into one continuous shot in the, in the finished product. But what you can see here is the back of the building's hollowed out. Um, the first time, I think they actually got, he tried to destroy it, it didn't actually work, and so they had to film it a couple different times. If you ever wondered why, uh, how Godzilla gets rained on, it's just a guy with the hose, so that's kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> but you can obviously see the scale, um, and this, he just, there's a really great bit in the making of where they show the guy actually doing this, and it's a lot of fun to watch. This particular, uh, so 
these are missiles, and this is one of the few times that they actually they tied wires to Godzilla's suit, and when they have the rocket launcher shoot the missiles out, they actually are going right down a string, and then they, they explode live. So that's why the missiles are, are going straight at Godzilla, because a lot of times in, the, in special effects are getting shot every which way, and you have flares going different directions. In this case, the strings allowed Godzilla to, to be hit directly. So one of the cool things about Biolanti, uh, it took about, it took over 20 people to bring her to life, and they had 32 different strings pulling the wires. You can see, I mean, look, look at all the people on the side, and this is actually a shot where Godzilla, or Biolanti's chasing towards Godzilla, and the people behind her have to be running alongside the prop to make it, act, to, to make it look realistic. Here's some concept art, I'm just gonna kinda scroll through these. You can see, uh, for one of the rose forms, you can see Erica's head, I, I assume that's what they're going for there, it looks kinda creepy. Um, this is an unused concept for Biolanti. The idea here was Godzilla would somehow evaporate the lake. I don't know much detail about that, but that's what this particular piece of concept art's going for. Then you have the Super X. Uh, you can see from this particular concept art piece that it's radically different from what we ended up getting in the final film. I mentioned the spores earlier. There was an idea that uh, when Biolanti spores would co come in contact with into humans that they would begin to assimilate into her at some point. Didn't make it into the final film. Pretty interesting concept art there. You can see that just all, all the different various concepts that never made it into the film. And this, this movie probably has... Kawasakita said that they probably shot more film footage for this film than any previous Godzilla film. And there's a wealth of concept art. These are unused uh, Biolanti designs. I mean, just look at the variations from them. None of, none of them really even look close to what we got. A lot of the art was done by... Um, Nishikawa, he designed several monsters. He kind of took the, the basic idea of the monster and he fleshed it out, and ultimately his design was the one that they ended up using for the final film. Some of those look very like Leogon. <laughs> yeah, they're dead on. All right, uh, so the movie, like many movies in the Heisei period, got a manga adaptation. Uh, so this one ran in new type and was actually done by uh, Toshiki Hirano. He was going by as uh, Toshihiro Hirano at the time. Hirano is a prolific anime director. Uh, he's uh, he did uh, he was a creator of Vampire Princess Mew and uh, Fight Ixer One. Uh, he has a series on Netflix most recently called Baki that is insane. Uh, he directed Devilman Lady and Magic Knight Ray Earth and uh, a handful of other things. If what I'm saying doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. That just means you're a normal person. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, he was uh, the guy responsible for this uh, manga adaptation. And one of the interesting things about it is that this manga adaptation came out, it started fairly early on, and this movie was filmed up until the last minute. They were still shooting special effects films a month before the movie came out. So there's a lot of stuff that's different between the manga, which is based on one of the screenplays, and the... Uh, in the actual movie, and then there's also little bits of creative liberties that he might have taken as a, as a manga storyteller. So you can go back and forth between the two, and it gets a little bit, uh, little bit different here. So we have, we have uh, Miki and Erica right there. So a couple of the differences. Uh, as we talked about, there are a lot of different designs that the Super X went through, and this uh, Super X2 looks very different from the sort of uh, bicycle helmet looking doohickey that we get that, uh, in, in the actual movie. Uh, 
Another different scene is right at the opening, and this is great. I sort of wish it was in the movie, but it might have might have weighed things down. Is it starts off in 1984, and it starts with Miki as a little girl, and she goes to her teacher, and she says that she's afraid of Godzilla, and her teacher's like, <laughs> Godzilla hasn't been seen since 1954. You have nothing to worry about. Uh, and then she goes into the city with her parents to be taken to a psychologist because she keeps freaking out about Godzilla, and guess what? Godzilla appears and kills her parents. So... <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's a tragic backstory for a character that we see in, uh, what, seven movies, six movies? <laughs> and uh, we, we never, never get that in the films themselves. So because uh, Biollante went through so many different forms uh, in design phase, not in the movie itself, uh, it wasn't entirely uh, clear what the actual monster was going to look like in the movie when the manga was being made. And as a result, the manga has slightly different looks to it. And I, I like this really grotesque final form for her uh, there. And then the, the, the rose form also doesn't, you know, I'm one who's always thought that the rose form looked a little goofy in the movie itself, but this sort of, you know, really plant-like, it doesn't look like a, a guy in a suit with a rose head, you know, so it's neat. And then as a, as a fun little Easter egg, the last couple of pages after the, the author's uh, comments is, uh, just sketches of various Toho characters. And this is uh, actually one I selected that I like because it's uh, both the cyborg girl from Terror of Mechagodzilla, but then uh, Gurano's original char character, uh, Ixer-1, is actually chilling out on Godzilla's head there. So I thought that was a fun thing. <laughs> a couple things I meant to mention uh, earlier, the, the scene where Biolance is actually charging at Godzilla, that was something that they came up with on the spot. That was Kawakita's idea, so they actually had to figure out how to do it. Um, I thought that was a pretty interesting piece for the movie because I think it's such a pivotal, pivotal uh, moment in the fight and to think that he came up with the idea, then they had to figure out how to get it on the cart, then they had to figure out how to move everybody at the same time. It takes a lot of ingenuity and I feel like this is definitely Kawakita's best work, at least for the Godzilla series. And, and it shows a lot of his um, want to and desire and you can see all of the, the planning that went into the film because the movie was shot basically as far as special effects in four months and it was even still being worked on two weeks before release. It was released on December 16th. They were still doing uh, post-production at the end of November. Well, um, we have uh, some time. So uh, we, we wanted to set a few minutes aside at the end to do a Q&A. And I think Matt has a giveaway as well. Yep. yep. So... So we'll start with questions. We probably have uh, five, six questions, and then we're actually going to give away shirts. We have a limited amount, so first come, first serve after the panel's over. So let's start um, right here in the front. I don't know that there's any script reference as to why that happens, to be honest. So I've the never question seen. was, why does Biolante's spores go, go into space at the end? Yeah, I've never seen any explanation for that. That's a great question. I don't know. Yeah. It's always looked like some sort of ascension. It's coated in bright light and, you know, sort of seems like a, like a joyous thing. So whatever subtext you get from that. She's free, finally. <laughs> uh, right here in the middle. Yeah. I believe it. I would say it's very likely. Yeah, that sounds... Yeah. I mean, Toho definitely recycles a lot of ideas going back as far yeah. as the, the 70s, so that's entirely possible. Um, this guy wrote a book about it. <laughs> Uh, front. All right. The question is: Is there an Ultra Q episode that is similar, and is there a relation? I think um, he's pro you're he's probably thinking of the, the mammoth flower, yeah, the flower episode. Yeah. 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 
that, um, and that would have been using Gamera Two, Gamera versus Legion. Yeah, yeah. Right. Gamera Two is a much more overt reference or homage, but I certainly don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it could have been an influence in some way or shape. John, that's a good question, and um, so his question was. Uh, the movie was recently voted as the best Godzilla movie in Japan, but uh, we, we really didn't talk about what happened after this movie came out. Uh, it was kind of a box office disaster, um, which is what made them bring back King Ghidorah in the next film, and, um, you know, they told Omori, you know, to write, you know, a little bit more kid-friendly, which is why Ghidorah is what it is. Um, but... As for why it's, and also I should mention that when it came out, not only did it not do well financially, but also um, critically, uh, even in the States, I mean, I mentioned the Markelite magazine from when it came out. If you can find it, it might be in the dealer's room somewhere, but I mean, there's reviews calling it the worst Godzilla movie ever made. Um, it's insane, yeah. You would think, if, if, you, if you guys remember kind of like the reaction to Final Wars, it was similar, and I, I think over time, it. it it kind of this movie has become accepted, um, but I don't. As for why it was received so negatively, then I don't know. Maybe it's like like I said, it's a very distinct shift from what the franchise was. But do you guys have any theories as to why it is? It's basically earned such a positive reputation. I think it's just generational because I mean, if you ask most baby boomers, their favorite Godzilla movie is still Godzilla versus the Thing. You know, that's consensus. But I think it's just amongst, like, let's say, our generation that were kids when we saw the Heisei movies. I think that's probably who was polled in Japan was that generation, and they chose it. So I think it's generational. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I would agree with that. All, right, all the way in the back. Yeah. I think everyone's a fan of John. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when I listen to his music, and if you've heard his stuff um, in the Dragon Quest games specifically, and you're watching it, especially like the, the theme that sounds kind of like, I describe it as almost circus music. Um, it's very much like the big bad boss that, you're, that is coming out to fight you. And you would think of like a Final Fantasy game almost too. It's that very kind of crazy theme and all of a sudden you know something bad's going to happen. I think if you think of it in that vein, most of his work is is very specific to video games. Um, I kind of find his score to be uneven in some respects. Like some of it really fits the movie. Some of it detracts from the movie. Um, I've not heard anything about John Williams being an, uh, an inspiration by it though, or for it. Front. Um, so the question is, was it always planned for Miki to be a recurring character? Um, as, I'm going to defer to John because he is the, like, hey, here's these scripts <laughs> that never got made guy. Do you have any idea? Yeah, yeah. so, like, I can't say that Kazuki Omori said that from the start. was like, oh, I'm going to use her again. Um, all I know is that right when he wrote Mothra versus Bagan, which was the next one, he put her in there, and he said that he was going to do uh, a four-part series, and part of that four-part series that would have come after Mothra versus began would have explained Mickey's origin and so yeah what I just I remembered was it I think either him or Kawakita like said they just really loved the Mickey character so I think it's just yeah the people making the movies just kind of fell in love with that character and it just kind of rolled into the next 
several films. And the Heisei series was much bigger on continuity, like from the get-go. So I think if they have you know this interesting psychic character, it's it's leaving cards off the table to uh, not use her, which is why sometimes she shows up in movies that she maybe shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Last question here in the front. Kevin, is that from one of the Caesar shows? Yeah, because they recycled so. yeah, a lot of monster designs and concepts and. Nishikawa was on there too because they did like their own kind of bootleg versions of uh, yeah yeah like they did the Hedera kind of character a Megalon of, yeah, yeah. Mechanicong yeah. they did a whole lot of homage characters so I, I think that's what it is I don't I don't know which of the three series it's, it is I heard someone in the audience say Justerizers okay so there's your answer all right. Thank you for attending the panel. Again, we have about 40 shirts or so. If you're interested in the shirts, just come on. We're just giving it out for free. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.